Welcome to Supporting the Spectrum, the Thompson Center's podcast series on all things autism. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date information on autism research, services, and supports. I'm Gina Randolph, faculty in the Special Education Department at the University of Missouri's Thompson Center. In today's episode, we'll focus on the access to special services in the schools, and really more specifically on the evaluation process itself. That's the entry point to receiving services in the schools. With me today to share her knowledge is Kim Selders. Kim is a school psychologist by trade with over 16 years of experience. And I've known Kim personally. We've worked together across a couple of different contexts and for, for a number of years. So I know that she's so interested and it has this vested interest really in increasing access to evaluations and services for underserved populations. She's worked as a school psychologist in both Missouri and California. She served as a director of disability services at a private college. And currently, she's an essential member of both our training and assessment specialist teams here at the Thompson Center. Kim, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Well, to start us off, I want to talk about the big picture. Learning to navigate the various systems to get access to services can be really overwhelming. Um, In our last podcast episode, we talked about the diagnostic evaluations here at the clinic and kind of how to navigate those and what that looked like. So as as a first step, Can you start by telling us about the difference between the school-based evaluations and those clinical or medical diagnostic evaluations? Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the um, most common areas of confusion for families and folks out in the community is what is the difference between a clinical and a medical evaluation and diagnosis and what happens in the schools. And one kind of important point before I even dive into what each of those might entail is that they are pretty mutually exclusive, meaning that a diagnosis from a medical or clinical setting doesn't automatically mean that a child will have an eligibility for special ed under an autism category. And similarly, it's not required for the schools to have an evaluation done for a child with autism um, to get a medical diagnosis. So they do kind of function in, in separate ways. A clinical or a medical diagnosis is done by medical professionals, healthcare professionals. So typically that might include a clinical psychologist, perhaps a psychiatrist, a medical physician, and these take place in clinical settings, um, healthcare settings. And they are using the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual at this point, fifth edition, to make um, determinations about whether the child meets criteria for a clinical diagnosis of autism. Most commonly, these evaluations occur over the course of you know a single day. They're um, relatively short in terms of how many days are included in that evaluation for a family to attend. And typically, a medical or a clinical evaluation occurs just once. So reevaluation for a child from a medical standpoint um, only happens when there is necessity for that reevaluation. The types of recommendations that a medical provider might provide um, tend to kind of run um, the gamut, could include school-based recommendations along with community setting, home setting, um, workplace settings, things like that. So school-based evaluations and eligibilities for autism occur and are overseen um, through special education law, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act oversees um, that process. And uh, these occur in the school settings. It is usually a multidisciplinary team or an IEP team, evaluation team, who would do these assessments in the school setting. 
And the evaluation in a school occurs over a much longer period of time for a student. So typically it's about 60 days that the testing window is for, for students being evaluated. And reevaluation has to be considered every three years for kids who have special education eligibilities. And this, the recommendations that are made in a school-based evaluation are pretty focused to that school setting. So those are some of the kind of key primary differences between the clinical and medical side of things and the school-based side of things for kids who have autism. I think you made such an incredible point of clarification there. I know in working with families over the years, there's, there's this assumption out there that the first step is I have to get my medical evaluation and then once I get that, then the schools must give me services. And, um, and you're right, it's, it's not, that's not the path, or that's not necessarily the path. So um, really helpful to understand that you can, you can initiate, you can ask for, you can um, start the process of that school-based evaluation separate of the medical. You don't have to wait on a medical. Mm-hmm. But it's equally as important to understand that just having that medical-based diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean that you would qualify for school services. Mm-hmm. So just to take that point a step further, what is part of that eligibility for schools? So if schools can say like, hey, I know that you have this, this medical um, diagnosis, but we're finding you're not eligible, how does that happen? What is a school's determination based on? Yeah, so the school um, criteria is based on the definition of autism. The the IDEA has a federal definition that they provide, but each state can kind of produce their own definition and criteria as long as it sufficiently encompasses what the federal definition includes. And so um, that is sometimes why there might be kids who are eligible clinically, but not within the school setting. Um, Additionally, schools are required to really consider whether the child's um, symptoms or disability uh, significantly adversely affects the child's performance at school. And does that child require specialized instruction in order to um, kind of access curriculum in the school setting and be provided what they call a free appropriate public education? So in essence, um, the big bulk of the difference being to what extent that child's symptoms affect their performance at school and that there's information through the evaluation that that sufficiently shows the child needs some kind of uh, special education or special services in the school setting. And I do want to make kind of an additional point about, we were talking about from the standpoint of, of families not having to wait to refer for a special education evaluation. And along those same lines, schools Uh, If they suspect that a child does have a disability or does have autism in the schools, schools cannot wait for a medical or a clinical diagnosis to happen. And so from both sides of that, you've got the kind of the parents can refer if they have a concern. Schools also have the responsibility to step up and say, hey, we know we have some concerns about this kiddo and we think that they might be on the spectrum. We have a responsibility to start that evaluation on our own, even though they may be on a wait list for an evaluation in a clinical or medical setting. So the responsibility does kind of go both ways with that. Yeah, that's a, a huge, um, important 
factor to consider there. Um, so it sounds like from what you're saying that those school-based evaluations, they can be initiated either by the parents or school personnel. Is that accurate? That Yes, that is accurate. So if a parent has a concern about their child, they can contact the school, um, either their principal or teacher or special education office at the district and say, I want my child to be considered for a special education evaluation. So the parent could do that. Um, additionally, the, the classroom teacher could do that. Any adult in the school could do that and, and bring that concern forward. Some schools will have problem-solving teams that meet to discuss kids at the school and just kind of how they're progressing and when concerns come up. Um, so some kids might be referred through a problem-solving team that, that is present in their schools. So um, there's a variety of ways, and, and professionals and parents can, can all make that initial referral for a consideration for testing to occur. Excellent. So just to help our, our families know that entry point, if if a parent is listening and they are concerned, is there a particular person that they need to go to or a way that they need to ask and, and make this request? You know, it kind of varies, you know, school district um, to district. Your probably most direct line would be your district special education office or office of special services because they are the ones who oversee more kind of big picture, the evaluation for special education. I would recommend um, doing it in writing and if you can. But I also think that connecting with the classroom teacher is a really good step first as well. So, um, you know, you could contact your classroom teacher, talk to them about your concerns, and, and that teacher can take it forward, or you could make the referral yourself. Um, but having that really first-line open communication with the professionals in your child's own school um, not only is a great starting point for the point of referral, but also along the lines of just making sure that you are connected and everyone's on the same page about how your child is doing um, is, is really important along the, the entire time that your child's in school, as well as during the course of an evaluation consideration. Excellent. Okay, so let's um, let's keep moving this this process along. So mm -hmm. we're understanding the difference of of kind of when to access either educational or or medical evaluations how to, to start that process. But once we're in the process, can you talk a little bit about what parents can expect? You talked about the expanded timeline, um, but I, I, that timeline, I mean, it sounds long if you're not in the schools to say, okay, I, you know, I want this evaluation done and, and you're going to take 60 days to do it. So if, if you could just give us a little bit of a richer understanding of what happens during the evaluation and, and how might parents be involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. So it is. it can be kind of an overwhelming process to be part of. So it's kind of nice to have a blueprint, I guess, in a way of what, what a parent might expect. I will say that there could be differences state to state or, you know, district to district in terms of the details of what this looks like. But in general, um, once a referral is made, the uh, multidisciplinary team will collect information about that child's performance at school, as well as some information from the home setting in Missouri. We, we call that the re review of existing data. And that takes about 30 days to gather. So they're going to be putting together lots of information of, over the kind of domains of functioning that might influence a child's performance at school. And then after that 30 days is over, the team kind of looks at all of that data and really looks at it and, and thinks about, from what we know about this child right now, do we suspect that this child has a disability under the Individuals with Disability Education Act. So based on the review of existing data, do we think that this child may have a disability that requires special education? 
So if that is the case, if the team does suspect that the child has a disability, they will um, ask the parent for consent to proceed with, uh, with testing or with an evaluation. And so once they get that parent signed consent that gives them permission to proceed with the evaluation assessments and tools that they've determined they want to, to provide during the course of that evaluation, that's when the 60 days of testing kind of come in, at least you know here in Missouri. And after those, so throughout those 60 days, some of the things that parents might have occur for their child or for them would be things like an interview about the child's developmental history, some questionnaires to fill out. The um, examiners will pro uh, provide some direct assessments probably and observations across school settings. Um, if there are outside concerns related to behavior needs, there might be some behavior specific assessments. So it's all very individualized to what type of assessments that team thinks are going to be important and critical to determine whether that child is eligible for special ed, and if so, what kind of supports and services are needed. So the evaluation happens for those kind of 60 days, and then the multidisciplinary team, parent included, come together and have an eligibility determination meeting. Sometimes we hear it called the staffing meeting, um, where the test results are all gone over. The parent hears what the evaluation what the evaluation team found in the course of their assessments, and then whether the child meets criteria for a disability under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. At that meeting, if it is determined that the child meets criteria for a disability, then within 30 days of that time frame, an individualized education program will get developed. And that plan includes kind of that present level, what's the child doing right now, what do we know about their performance in school, and it also outlines what types of goals and services, how much time they're going to have in different special education settings versus in the general education settings, accommodations, modifications, testing. So that really outlines what the child's educational plan is going to be um, moving moving forward. In that process, you talked about like the different domains that might be assessed. So fill some holes in for mm -hmm. me. Uh, so some of those, it, it's not necessarily testing across all domains, but they might be looking at language and communication, um, social, emotional, behavior, mm -hmm. learning, kind of those academic key components. Mm -hmm. How are they doing in math and reading and writing, adaptive behaviors. Right. Um, help me, fill, fill in yeah, some blanks there. Uh, cognitive development, motor skills perhaps. They might need to rule out some concerns related to vision and hearing, so there might be some things that need to be assessed accordingly there. They might want some additional health information, so that's um, during the course of that evaluation if their child does have an outside diagnosis from a clinical setting or medical services, um, any kind of community-based services that they're getting, getting those kind of records so that the school can consider those. Um, so really broad areas of functioning are, are possibilities for what you your, your child might be evaluated under. So hearing you say that medical piece as well, mm -hmm. is that where a medical diagnosis or a medical evaluation might come into play in this process? Yeah, so a lot of times I think both schools and clinical-based evaluation professionals and like to have any other evaluation information that is available for a child. So if I'm working in the schools and I have a child who um, we're evaluating for autism and they happen to have a clinical diagnosis, let's say from the Thompson Center, if the parent gives me permission to get those records, it's incredibly helpful to see what was found in the course of that outside evaluation for me to include as part of the data that goes into our decision-making process. And I think the flip side is also true. So 
if you have a child who has a school-based evaluation that's been done, if the parents can provide that information to the clinical psychologist at, let's say, the Thompson Center doing their evaluation, that's really helpful information for that provider as well to see what the information was um, that was kind of gleamed from the school-based evaluation. That certainly makes sense. The more information that's shared, the more information that's provided, the better the programming can be Absolutely. for the child. I think that's the the primary benefit of considering having evaluations done both clinically and at, in the school. You know, for school-based services, for special education services and evaluation at the school is, is required. Um, they can't provide special education services unless your child has gone through a special education evaluation. And so, but I think it's also important for that clinical or medical piece to happen for many children because it results in more comprehensive service delivery across all the different settings that the child is going to be experiencing in their life. Additionally, you know, we know that kids with autism, um, you know, it is a lifelong disability. And so while they might not have an additional medical or psychiatric need when they're initially evaluated, those things might um, occur as the child gets older or over the course of development. And so having an autism-specific medical support team in place already, if there was something medical to come up as the child gets older, it just makes that, that support so much more readily available to families so that they're not having to navigate kind of is this autism-based symptoms that we're seeing or is it anxiety that we're seeing that needs some special support and having a medical professional who has those levels of expertise to help decipher that and then treat accordingly is really important. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Too, with those those medical-based evaluations, that is often the entry point to those additional community-based services. Exactly. And so ongoing through the lifespan, that can be very supportive and helpful. Mm Mm-hmm. I do want to tie us back just a second to the evaluation itself because personally when I was working in schools uh, and and helping support families through this process from evaluation to service delivery, one of the things that would come up routinely is some parents having a concern about IQ tests in particular. Because really, you know, IQ tests are this this tricky thing. And parents would, would rightfully say, you know, my child has a really hard time uh, attending to me or attending to task or being responsive, but I know that they are smarter than they test. And so I know parents can hold this concern that IQ tests aren't a true representation of their child's ability. And at times, I, I remember supporting parents who who really did not want IQ tests performed on their child. They were really concerned about having this number associated that might limit their child in some way long term or limit access to stuff. So just from a professional perspective, can you talk a little bit about IQ testing? Is it important? What information does it provide? Is this something that that you recommend we do? Yes, uh, absolutely. And 100% hear and understand and respect the concerns that are raised related to IQ testing for kids on the spectrum. We we know that their de- kind of cognitive development trajectory can can be different than than kids who don't have autism of their same age and I understand that there 
is concern or fear that their child might be, I don't know, limited by what the the score provides. And and this is kind of a call to professionals as well to really be thinking about um, not just testing IQ once, but multiple times over the course of a child's time in school, because we do know that as a child develops in their behavioral skills and their ability to respond and their joint attention capacity, we might see changes in their scores over time and would want to make sure that that is reflected not only in their evaluation scores, but in how we're responding in their programming. That said, cognitive testing has been, for most of the research-based kind of experts in autism assessments, um, determined to be a, a an evidence-based part of gold standard autism assessments. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of the most important ones for me and for those who have to make decisions about the child's skill set, we have to have a baseline to compare it to. And so cognitive testing gives the, the evaluation team or the professional a ballpark of where that child's overall developmental level is. And so as a decision-making team or professional, what is the onus is that you have to compare that child's behaviors and social skills to their overall developmental level, not necessarily their chronological age. For example, if you have a child that you're testing who is eight years old, but the developmental level is closer to five years old, you're going to be needing to compare that child's social skills and behavior to what would be expected of a five-year-old, not an eight-year-old, to determine whether what you're seeing is characteristic of autism or, or more in line with where that child's overall development is. And along those same lines, cognitive testing is important to inform whether or not the child has a co-occurring intellectual disability that needs support and services as well. Moreover, IQ is highly predictive of long-term outcomes for kids on the spectrum, and so it's, it's super helpful to have that information to help inform programming to ensure that the most comprehensive and appropriate supports are in place for kids. Thank you. When explained that way, it definitely sounds like a meaningful piece to the puzzle. And again, mm-hmm. always tying back to that programming, because anything that we do on this front end, any information that we gather, any processes that are in place should really be leading to to make sure that the kids have the most supportive plan possible in place. Absolutely. So sometimes it happens that parents disagree with the school-based evaluation one way or another. Sometimes they, they disagree because it looks different than the medical evaluation, and sometimes it's just you know, for whatever reason in general. So taking that next step, if that were to happen, well, I guess let me back this up because I actually have two questions here. My first question is, is in thinking about what if I've had a medical evaluation and, and my medical evaluation says my child has autism, but then I went to the schools and the school is saying, no, we're going to provide services for your child, but we're not going to serve your child for autism. So my first question, it really has a couple of facets to it. It, it, When this happens, one, what can parents do? And two, how can that happen? What are the factors that go into that? Yeah, so my my ultimate point will be that we want to make sure the child's needs are being served. 
And so from a parent standpoint, you kind of need to, to weigh for yourself. If my child, let's pretend, has a medical diagnosis of autism, but is being served in the school setting under intellectual disability, really looking at, well, are my kids' needs getting met in the school? Are they getting the services that they need to meet where their areas of concern are? And if so, really need to kind of going back to think, does, does it matter, I guess? Do I really care about what that, that particular eligibility label is? You know, I mentioned that schools and clinical settings have different criteria that they have to function under. And so um, it's possible that the child met criteria for in the DSM for autism and in the school setting, they didn't meet criteria for autism, but did meet for intellectual disability. And so that's how this, the team made their decision. But ultimately, if you have questions or concerns or disagreements with the evaluation, either the process or what came out of it, my, my strongest recommendation would be to go back to your evaluation team and communicate with them about that. Most of the time, concerns and questions can get supported and fielded and everyone gets on the same page just through your school-based evaluation team. And then if your enhanced communication with your evaluation team doesn't kind of satisfy those concerns, then my recommendation would be to contact your district special education office who can kind of walk you through your procedural safeguards and what other options might be a next step for you. It could be um, an independent educational evaluation, mediation, due process, just depending on on what those needs are. But but really just to kind of go back to communicating with that evaluation team about the questions that you have, the concerns that you have, and, and seeing if you can get on the same page with, with them before proceeding through any kind of legal processes would be my recommendation. I think that's such an important point that you make. And I, and I understand, I definitely understand the, the tie to okay, medically, we know that this is autism. We know that this is autism. And so kind of connection with that that label and really what all that encompasses, that gives a clear path forward. And so it can be really confusing to have it looked at differently in the school system. But again, really good points to remember that the school-based criteria is a little bit different than the medical-based criteria. And, and that key point is is my child going to receive the services and supports that they need in order to be successful in this environment? That's that's really, really helpful information. I do have one final question that I want to ask mm-hmm. you before we wrap up. And, and really, this comes from a personal place for me. I, I've kind of alluded to before, I spent years supporting in the school system directly and, and working very closely with a number of families. And one of the most gut-wrenching things is a family sitting through that initial evaluation meeting, and not even initial, but even those reevaluation meetings, just by the nature of eligibility determination, test results are shared out, and the conversation then has to be focused on really specific detailed scores that sometimes come across as being very meaningless out of context. And also, the conversation, unfortunately, really stays focused on those areas where the child is struggling, you know, the areas where they they have need and are going to need more support. And, And knowing how hard it is for families to sit through those meetings what advice do you have for school personnel to make the meetings um, more positive and less overwhelming and just framing it as a better experience overall for parents? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. And as 
um, evaluation team members, we have the responsibility to comprehensively evaluate and adequately inform parents of what their child's performance was on, on the assessment tools that were provided, but at the same time, needing to make sure that we are are doing so in a way that is respectful and is something that can be understood and, and heard by the parents. And I think there's a number of things that school-based teams can do to support that aspect of communication in meetings. And so part of it being taking some time to kind of set the stage for the parents to really explain what the goal is of the meeting and why you're required to do the things that we're getting ready to do. And so if it's an initial evaluation meeting, you know, your explanation might be slightly different than if it's a reevaluation meeting. But, you know, kind of setting the stage for we're, we're here today to go over all of the assessment results and we're required to compare your child's performance to kids of their same age to determine areas of concern and where they're struggling. So, you know, we're going to go over a variety of domains and kind of explain what is about to, to happen. So taking some time at the forefront of the meeting to describe that. And then as going through the results, kind of thinking about how you can communicate sufficiently the information without having to necessarily go over every single subtest score within a rating scale or an assessment that was provided, um, taking some time before you go into that meeting to think about how to synthesize that information. So for instance, on reevaluations of kids who have significant impairments, I would very often recommend saying something like, you know, as, as you remember from what we described the meeting, outset is going to be, um, you know, we had to, we're, we gave you the rating form about, you know, your child's daily living skills. And again, those are compared to kids of her same age who don't have disabilities. And so across those social skills, the daily living self skills, self-care skills, um, you know, she scored in the severely impaired range compared to children of her same age, and then highlighting some areas of growth from perhaps the last evaluation or something, an area of strength that has been identified by the teacher or by you. Um, so really taking some time to think about how to synthesize results in a way that's meaningful without being overly repetitive and then trying to highlight areas uh, of strength within the evaluation. And I really think it's it's incredibly meaningful for families when you, especially if you've done some direct testing with the child or you know the child or you observe the child in a setting where you can show them something that you saw in their child that that you loved. And, and I think it's so meaningful for parents who have kids that struggle to hear, you know what, your child is so amazing. He's the coolest kid I've seen. This is what he did when we were working together, and it just was the really, really cool thing that he did. Or I loved seeing how she raised her hand and contributed. Like, what a darling. She's so sweet. And making sure that you're really connecting with the parents about the child. And I think keeping the eye in this meeting in particular on the kiddo is, is really helpful, both for families and for educators, especially if there's going to be some points of potential hard stuff for families to hear, hard stuff for teachers to say, um, if you can really focus on the fact that everyone in that room that day is there to do what is best for that kid. And that's a good reminder for us as education professionals, as well as for the parents to, to really kind of keep that perspective and that point of view that even though there might not be the, the same view on, on the data or on the results that everybody is there on behalf of of that kiddo. 
and making sure to highlight strengths along with those areas of challenge. Thank you, Kim. That is such such great advice. And and yes, I, I second absolutely the importance of really also keeping a focus on those those personal strengths and and those those traits to be celebrated because it is so easy to get overwhelmed with the areas that need improvement as well. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and insight with us today. We hope that you've learned something from this episode, and please tune back in for more episodes from Supporting the Spectrum. Thank you.